Hello and welcome to Troubling Issues, a podcast about comics, but for everyone. Every fortnight we do a deep dive on a single issue of a comic book that's either good, bad, or a little bit weird. In any case, it's definitely going to be a noteworthy comic, and we definitely have a noteworthy comic this episode. I'm Brad Daniels, a comic writer, artist, and fan, and this week's guest, I would like to welcome back the improviser and mad genius, Mark Buckingham. <laughs> oh, bless you. I'll just take um, improviser and genius. Okay. Uh, <laughs> improviser and sane genius. <laughs> okay, that could be it. I don't know many sane people who dress up as uh, steam engines, though. I don't understand. <laughs> okay. Uh, Mark, you've been on the show before, but I will ask, is there anything you'd like to tell us about yourself before we get underway? Oh, well, look, um, like, like you, I'm interested in comics. Um, I've always loved comics. I don't have a, the background that you do um, in comics, and that's why I love asking you questions about comics. But um, I've gone all shy. <laughs> I'm sorry, oh, Brad. That's okay. Know. I'm just that's a, just okay, a person Mark. like look, you. This happens to everyone, okay? I'm sure everyone has periods when they just don't know how to talk during a podcast. Doesn't make you any less of a man. It's just, uh, you know, we'll try again in a little bit. Okay. I'm sure something will happen then. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe maybe if I mentioned that we're talking about 2000 AD, the famous uh, English weekly science fiction comic, all those words are true and correct which uh, you have a personal, I believe, a personal connection to. Look, it was one of my first comics where it just showed me the scope of what's possible because 2000 AD just wasn't, you know, Archie. It wasn't Scooby-Doo. It was sci-fi, weird concepts and ideas, and they went to town. Um, but that was my interaction with it. What about you? Well, I didn't discover 2000 AD till later on in its run. I think in around about, I think it might have been number program prog number 900. Holy moly! Uh, but uh, yeah, it was it was a good like the fact that it came out weekly. There was like several stories in it. Uh, it really aimed at, uh, offered aimed, offered a lot of bang for the buck. And I, I really enjoyed it. And it's still looking at the issue we're looking at today. The fact that it was marketed as a children's comic just blows my mind. It's like, yeah, yeah, it yeah. is not. There is not children's themes in there, in my opinion. Would you agree? <laughs> I totally agree. Uh, we are looking at this episode, 2000 AD, prog number two two seven. From August 1981, this is fairly early on in the run of 2000 AD, which is still running today. Uh, remarkably, considering the, uh, the 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 publishing world online and all that, the fact that it still exists and is still coming out weekly blows my mind. Uh, and w starting with the kid-friendly thing on the uh, cover of uh, this issue of 2000 AD, <laughs> Which is, first there's a guy holding a gun on our guy who's forcing him to launch a ICBM nuclear missile saying, here's a reward for making me all-powerful, Stone. Death! 
Yeah, children's themes um, from the get-go. Oh another another point in time that you can you gave the date that this is released, but there's currency on the front cover. It costs sixteen pence, um, but you, they also have the Australian price on the on the front cover. It was forty-five cents to get this entire oh, comic. It blows my mind. Do you know what the current price is for this for two thousand AD? For 2000 AD, no, but I am very sorely tempted to look that up. It must be in excess of $5, surely. Um, I can't help myself. I'm going to vamp while I look. Uh, I'm looking too. Okay, we're both look, This is podcasting at its finest. Well, look, okay, let's let's make a bet. I'm going to say... No, I'm going to say $9. What are oh. you going to say? Oh. I haven't found no, it it's yet. It's hard to disagree. Uh, I'll say... Eight dollars fifty. Okay, two thousand Australian price. Ah, wow, well, we're both wrong. How much is it? I'm reading a five forty nine. Oh that's wow, a, that's five dollars forty five fifty Australian price. Well, look, that's better than I thought. That's still a lot per week, but it's so much better than. Uh, most of the other comics that are on the stands these days, which are generally about nine dollars, nine or ten dollars each. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Just, there's to to give. Uh, you know, we we might not go through every story in it, but there's normally about five or six different stories in a in a 2000 AD. And you think it's, we're not going to go through all of them? Interesting. Okay, okay let's go. <laughs> Let, let's begin. Okay, so we're going to try and get through this whole issue. Within half an hour. So we have the ICBM on the front cover. It's crazy. That is for a story, okay, that I am not familiar with, but I have a few things to say about when we get to it. Then, uh, first page is the nerve center. Borag Thung, Earthlets. It is, of course, Thug the Mighty, the uh, mascot slash editor of 2000 AD, an alien from Be- Beetlejuice uh, who has his own weird sayings. What do you reckon about Thug? Well, look, you know, he he's a whole thing. He's got his own vernacular. He, you know, he, he always ends it by saying Splendig Verthrig. You know, it, he's sometimes even had his own comics. He's an institution of 2000 AD and inseparable. He's had photo comics, actual like Fumetti, uh, where they take photos and add word balloons. Of a guy in a thug mask running around doing stuff, it's crazy. Well, yeah, it, it yeah. So it, it's to anyone else, he's he's like um sort of like a faux editor of this crazy crazy magazine. Yeah. Um, and all the an alien. yes, he's an alien from Beetlejuice, and all the writers and artists are robots. That is that is <laughs> the uh, the uh, setup for this particular magazine. Yeah, what else can you say? Nothing much. It's like it's like it's a good it's a very kids kids publication sort of like idea. Uh but yeah, like everything I think the 1980s were was a weird time, particularly for England. Uh and we'll talk about that more. Uh we start uh, there's a letters page which has a uh, a picture of Drudge Dread drawn by Earthlet Adrian Wills from Auckland, New Zealand. He won five pounds of that. Good stuff, Adrian. Love it. 
Oh, and people can ask Tharg questions. Uh, dear Tharg, what's months? <laughs> okay. And uh, the answer is months is the miracle food of the future, Earthlet Farrell. Exact details have to be kept classified at this time, as an early appearance of it could cause chaos in your planet's food supply. However, I will offer five pounds to any Earthlet who comes close to guessing the true nature of months. Indeed. The people are going to be given away, they're given kids money for sending your letters. I mean, that's brilliant. I love that. Yeah, it's a nice little start. Okay, we'll go straight on to the first story. As Mark mentioned, there's uh, five or six stories here. Strontium Dog, The Gronk Affair, Part 4. This is the finale of a particular story uh, written by Alan Grant, who uh, I believe co-created Judge Dredd, who we'll be talking about soon, and art by Esquire. Oh, he's my favourite. He also co-created Judge Dredd. Yes. Uh, and this is a fairly typical, like, action series. The twist is that it's a, there's a bounty hunter and he's a mutant. A strontium dog. Yes. The, there is a period of time where the, the parents of, you know, these um, mutants were um, exposed to strontium D90. Mm-hmm. And that's how... And which gave, you know, those people gave birth to mutants into society and the mutants, um, they, they didn't have a lot of um, job opportunities and a lot of them became bounty hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a bit like X-Men is what you're saying. A bit like X-Men. Well, a lot like X-Men. Do you think actually it's happening at the same time as X-Men in the comics? Absolutely. Because in Strontium Dog, there's all this racism against, you know, Strontium Dogs. Mm-hmm. And is it the, so is that really explored, that theme in X-Men? You know, oh, the, yeah, absolutely. X-Men is very much uh, about civil rights. But in the 80s? In the 80s, yes, indeed. When um, oh, wow. Chris Claremont was writing, which is what most of the movies are based on. Yeah, it's... Um, it very much, and I think it's a very, it's a an example of parallel uh, evolution from one side of the ocean of the Atlantic to the other. Because of course, in case we haven't mentioned it, 2000 AD is an English publication. Oh yes. Uh, and uh, and the X Men was American, so they both have very different takes. They're, the Strontium Dog is a lot more sardonic and violent, and a little bit more nihilistic than uh, than the X Men, I would say. And of course, that all the different mutants are, are pretty grotesque in the way that they are presented. They're not, uh, and they're not shown in the best light. Yeah, they're, most of them look like monsters, except for the hero mutant. Johnny Alpha has these special eyes that you know, with no pupils, and he can see through their X-ray eyes. Mm. He can also, I think, convince people to do things. I'm not sure about that, but anyway. Mm. Well, that's cool. Well, the, this is like uh, the final part of a four-part story. Uh, some bad mutants are setting up a uh, a ambush for Johnny Alpha and his uh, normo friend. Uh, what's his? What's oh, his Wolf. Name? Wolf. 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 Who speaks he's, in a heavy Swedish accent? He's actually from a different time. Oh, really? Yes, it's a yeah. The, there's a 
there is in Strontium Dog, there are time, they go back in time or forward in time in some episodes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Wolf owes his life, I think, to Johnny Alpha. If, please correct us if we're wrong, but I think that's why he's hanging around him. He, yeah, it's Wolf Sternhammer. Oh, fantastic. Uh, okay, the story is pretty basic. The, the bad mutants are setting up an ambush to get Johnny and Wolf. Uh, after they have slaughtered some indigenous life forms, uh, intelligent indigenous life forms, so they're particularly bad mutants, uh, it all goes terribly wrong for the baddies. Uh, Johnny and Wolf finish them off. Uh, there's even a shootout, which Johnny wins easily because he's too good. There's one thing I'd love to um, draw attention to, and it's um, it's the uh, tradition of saying the type of bullet you're about to shoot. <laughs> um, that's something that features in Drudge Dread. Yes. He always, um, but here, Johnny says, number three cartridge. Kaboom. Yeah. And it's obviously... I, I remember that no, there's number three and number four. Um, one of those was incendiary and one of those was high explosives. But, yeah, you, you just... It's this whole thing of, I will say what my gun is about to do. Yeah. As, uh, talking to your gun is a bit of a, uh, a theme, as you said. <laughs> so the story finishes with the, uh, with the natives. Um, the Groks. Uh, the Groks, who have a really cool design. Good, good work there by Carlos Escores. Uh, you know, showing their, uh, their appreciation for Johnny and Wolf. And they go away saying, you know, and I fear it is a debt we've, we can never repay. <laughs> there you go there. Okay, next story. We're going to, okay, we're going to go straight on to Nemesis the Warlock. Now, this is, uh, this, oh, this is a very interesting story. Uh, interesting series. I don't know if this particular story is particularly good. It's written by Pat Mills, who I've mentioned before on the podcast. And drawn by Kevin O'Neill, who has a very unique style. Mm. Um, and this is basically a big chase scene. This particular, um, this particular story. And a lot of these, um, a lot of these stories are like being small parts of a serial. Uh, there's not a lot to them, but it really uh, highlights the world that uh, Nemesis the Warlock uh, is based in. Well, there's literally only five pages to the to this, which is the the most of them. You're right. It is. What can you do in five pages? It's uh, um, well, you can do a lot of world building, apparently. Yeah. Look, I, I love Nemesis the Warlock. It's another favorite. I love Pat, uh, Pat Mills. That's the artist, or no, Kevin O'Neill, the writer. Kevin O'Neill oh. is the artist. Pat Mills is like uh, one of the driving forces behind 2000 AD. He was the editor for a long time. Uh, and he created Nemesis the Warlock, uh, Slain the Horn God, and lots of other characters as well. And he's like very much one of those left-wing pinkos. He's like, and the whole Nemesis is a, it's a bit of a uh, parody on fascism and conformity. Uh, it's all about, oh yeah, and once again, uh, racism because the aliens of which Nemesis is the leader uh, are vilified by the humans who live in perpetual fear of Torquemada, the, uh, the evil, what would you call them? 
Grand Inquisitor? Yes, I would definitely say that. Um, this particular part of the story um, is is interesting because Torquemada's body has been destroyed and he's actually an apparition. Um, mm. And what, what's interesting is it doesn't we won't cover obviously in this particular story, but it it leads on to the fact that you know while there's all this racial purity, he's a spirit, mm. so he's not human in a yeah. way that people normally are, and that um, that that chicken does come home to roost. Yeah, uh, supreme hypocrisy on the tar- part of Torquemada. However, just flipping through these pages, the backgrounds and the art style is just really astounding. It's like something out of one of those Germanist, German expressionist films. It's like Kevin O'Neill is an amazing and very uh, unique artist in this in this respect. Oh, yeah, the, the vast cities, you know, Ama- you, you get to see like the transportation sit- system of the cities and how they sort of work. I just love his style. It's yeah, like, it's great. It's meant to be like a termite mound inside here, uh, inside the city, and uh, he really captures that sort of alien, like weird thing. In this nightmare world, hundreds of termites were driven insane every day just by looking out their windows. I think that sums up pretty much what's going on there. Oh, for sure. Um, it's interesting that this is called Nemesis the Warlock, and he does not feature at all in this. Mm-hmm. And that's how good the baddie is in Nemesis the Warlock, and that he can you, you don't have to have the hero in here at all. <laughs> yeah. Well... Uh, I think a lot, one of the very subversive things about um, Nemesis the Warlock as a story, uh, as a whole, is like the difference between the hero and the villain is not so great. They are both <laughs> they are both very uh, corrupt and uh, n- not very noble individuals. Oh. Oh, I need to go back and read some. Uh, okay. I feel like uh, I feel like um, Nemesis the Warlock is less hypocritical than. Oh yeah, definitely less hypocritical, but just as um, ruthless and one could say bloodthirsty. I don't know. That's just my personal uh, personal analysis of it. I could be wrong. I'm going to say you are wrong, but I need to go back and read, and I'll come back on another show. And dedicate it to you being wrong. I love it. I love it. It's, well, it's good. To, that's something for. That's a teaser for everyone. Something to look forward to. <laughs> uh, okay, purity. In fact, uh, being the woman on oh. the run, she is more for mine the protagonist of the series because a lot of it is done from her point of view. Oh wow! I'm just. I'm just reacquainting. I was so enamoured with you know the two bad boys that you mm-hmm. know. Purity, like, didn't really rate on my radar, but I think you're right. Mm. Uh, you know, reading it as an adult now, it's, uh, yeah, because, like, she's all through this. She is. She, she's sort of like the audience point of view character. Uh, and it ends with her in peril to be continued, as it will be. But let's skip on. Ah, oh, we've got some ads here. Now, this is... Yes. we got Roy of the Rovers, which is another... another 
weekly comic strip series, uh, comic series, I should say. And I love this that they're giving away a flat repair kit for your football uh, with the uh, spectacular soccer special. Uh, that is fantastic. Uh, that they would give away a soccer ball repair kit with a comic book. That's fantastic. Because <laughs> uh, yeah, football is very important to English life. Uh, football or soccer, depending on what you want to call it. And that is also shoot, which is a more of a straight, I'm going to assume a straight uh, uh, news, like sports news magazine. Yeah, I I think that's that's what I'm taking away. There's there's some yeah that's there's no cartoon characters in that. Yeah, it's fantastic. So there's uh, we'll feature that. Okay, after the ads, we have this is something I really wanted to talk about too, a little feature, a little two-page uh, story about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy TV show, uh, and how good the special effects were going to be. Oh, look, this is, you know, with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is, you know, a lexicon in, you know, of sci-fi, you know, would you agree? It's a touchstone or I don't know. Yes, indeed. It's like, it's the first, I suppose, yeah, I'll go that far. It's the first uh, science fiction humor series that met any degree of success where it's uh, on top of being... Very funny. It's also uh, the the ideas, the big ideas put into it are highly imaginative and original, and really, uh, you know, they work on a science fiction level, but they also work on a crazy humor level as well. And there's obviously it is British, but you know, with the, the protagonist of you know Arthur Dent being just so quintessentially British. Um, you know, not wanting to create such much of a fuss, but being embroiled in a giant galactic adventure. Um, you know, it's it's of charming to the last. Yes, indeed. The work of the late, great... Uh, uh, oh, come on, Brad. I can remember his name. Something Adams? Help me, help me, Mark. I'm, I'm trying to find it in the... Come um, on, you know. Um, Douglas Adams. Patch Adams. <laughs> no, not Patch Adams. Douglas Adams, the, the brilliant writer, environmentalist, all-around good guy. Uh, Douglas Adams. Uh, and I remember, still remember watching the first episode and going, what is this? Because it had been around for years before the TV show, show came out. There was a radio play first, then some books uh, based on the radio play. And then the TV show appeared. But, oh yeah. Uh, Look, my, my introduction to it was the TV show, and I went, "Wow, they've made a book." <laughs> it's the uh... yeah. yeah, same thing happened to me. We were we did not know such things, uh, but yeah, it's really good, and I find it very amusing that the story is all about how good the special effects are going to be because the special effects are not very good. It's of the time, <laughs> you know. It's the eighties, eighty one, and it's TV. I thought they were good at the time. Yeah, well, it was good for a BBC TV series. Uh, at the end, there's a guy, the uh, the special effects guy they're interviewing says he's going to be working on some the new series of Blake 7. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's going to be great. 
Uh, for those who don't know what we're talking about, don't worry about it. We're just being big nerds. You should go watch the trailer for Blake 7 right now if you don't know anything about it. You should go watch all four seasons. Yes. (laughs) And then come back to the podcast. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. We're going to skip over the main event. Now, in in the 2000 AD and other uh, English comics of this period, the main strip was always in the middle because... Then they could they would have color on the cover and they had the cover color on the inside middle spread. So you'd have the main event, the the main storyline in the middle spread. So you could have a color color uh, couple of pages of it. Yes, it was glorious. Mm. So we're gonna jump over that quickly to Mean Arena. Yes, another short story. This is something I'm not very familiar with. Well, this is something that you, this is very you. So, like, I feel like this is, I keep going, look, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, written by script robot Tom Tully and art robot Eric Bradbury. And it's very much, and speaking of how important uh, football is to the British people, this is very much a sci-fi version of football. It's very much like a Roy of a Rovers, except people are hitting each other into toxic waste and uh, doing weird things to score goals. There are robots. <laughs> there is uh, combat. It's all on t- telly, obviously. And they get to carry the ball around, like in American football. But for me, it just reads like a typical soccer game, except with sci-fi acrements added on. And less violence. <laughs> uh, than what you would see on a regular football field. You know, the I remember uh, reading Mean Arena and, like, it's not a, a classic sort of thing that I'm into, but it's, you know, it's apocalypse sport loosely revolving around getting a ball to, you know, the, the right goal. Um, and, you know, but there would be drama between the characters. It would be a, There's a soap opera, you know, between games. Yeah, that's, um, it's very much following the uh, the soccer strip uh, template as put forth by Roy of Rovers and other strips of the ilk, where it's like you have your on-field uh, action and the off-field drama. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I won't go through the actual storyline of this particular story because it's not really all that interesting. It's a game. People get thrown into toxic waste. Uh, one of them turns out to be a robot. Uh, Talon shoots and gets with a rebound, which apparently the goalkeeper had never even considered that someone would rebound the ball uh, into the goal. Everyone gets excited, and then the robot shows up for revenge. As That's, they do. As they do. Yes, um... Uh, Slayer figures that out, that he is, uh, yep, that he's a robot and he's in trouble. We'll quickly go to the last story in the comic, which is Meltdown Man. Now, this is uh, the finale of a story. It's written by Alan Hebden, and the art robot is listed as Ballardinelli. I think I got that right. 
basically, uh, from what I can gather from reading it, it's about a guy who jumps through different realities and times, has adventures in each one, and is trying to get back to Earth. Uh, this current reality is in is is ruled by animal people. He also have a, has a nemesis, the guy we saw on the cover, threatening to shoot him while he launched an ICBM. And uh, yeah, this is the finale of the series. The good guy is called. Uh, I don't know. I'm so thankful that you explained it to me because this is one I was just not getting. Yeah. I'm not familiar with this at, at all, but you've picked it up straight away. <laughs> okay, well, apparently this is the last chapter, and there have been there were 50 chapters all up, Whoa. which in itself is pretty impressive. And it had the same creative team, the same writer and artist through all 50 chapters. Of course, coming in at the last chapter, we have no idea who these people are or what their motivations are, what sort of people they are. But there is a scene... As I mentioned earlier, where they launch an ICBM, <laughs> a nuclear ICBM, and blow up the city. Yes, and that somehow rewrites the all the alternate realities, and it brings him back to his reality. That's pretty much it. And he gets it, to sit there saying, oh, I made it back home. Yeah, it's... Nemesis fades out of existence because he changed time and he thinks, well, all these other weird people I met on my way, they don't exist anymore either. But I'll always, they'll always live on in my memory. Not if you've changed time back, mate. You're screwed. You're going to forget that in the next panel. Oh, uh, well, there is no next panel, so he never will. That's the, that's the beauty of ending a story. So the thing is, like, I'll mention this now. Is, it is the 80s, uh, and particularly in England, uh, the whole nuclear menace, uh, the threat of nu- nuclear annihilation is a real and present fear for everyone every day. So it's not really surprising that it comes out in the kids' comics. But <laughs> Well, I don't know yet. Like you said at the start, is this a kids' comic? Are we telling kids about... In a nuclear war, <laughs> in a comic, uh, they already know about it. That's the thing. It's, it's not a surprise. To Everyone knows. Everyone knows. And like, uh, and plus, you know, the uh, going back to Nemesis, like it was the height of Thatcherism at this point in time too. So oh, true. Yes. So that's where the whole uh, Torquemada, you know, be good, be pure, behave comes from. Yes. As Torquemada's uh, catchphrase, as it were, was. Uh, we'll quickly go to the last two pages before we hit the Judge Dredd story. Oh, there's something good there. Oh, yes. Now, this is what I'm talking about. This is a fairly noteworthy story. We've had some... We've got... We've got... Um, we've got Strontium Dog in this issue. We've got one of the most famous Judge Dredd stories of all time. Uh, we've got the Mean Arena. We've got Torquemada. Sorry, Nemesis the Warlock. Yes. And in the next issue is going to be the very first, uh, according to this ad, appearance of Rogue Trooper. Uh, yeah, I, I love Rogue Trooper. He's the bioengineered um, warrior of the future. Yeah. 
I mean, he's not a household name, uh, but he is like the talent that brought that story together. I can't remember the uh, the writer. Actually, hold on, I'll just get the uh, the copy of my uh, Rogue Trooper collection off the off the shelf, and I'll find out. Okay, so I've got the first uh, first volume of Rogue Trooper. Oh. It's uh, written by Jerry Finley Day and a little chap called Alan Moore. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Yeah, no, I haven't really. Oh, he did a he did something called the the um, I think it was called the uh, Casio Men. The Casio Men, <laughs> possibly the most acclaimed graphic novel of all time. Uh, <laughs> The, the watch stoppers. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, uh, it's it's a very good uh, action-adventure story about uh, a, a soldier betrayed, a genetic infantryman, you know, basically a war story with sci-fi trappings added in. Uh, oh, but, gee, what a, what a time to be alive. I, if I was 12 years old and got this in my hands i would don't know what would i don't know i'd explode too much too much thrill power you know what i'm saying <laughs> well i guess like you need to explain a little bit about the draw of rogue trooper beyond you know who he is because he's not alone <laughs> oh you you will you, you want to go there you want to go I'll, there i want you to bring it bradley okay well uh he, he, all his all his fellow GIs, genetically, genetic infantrymen, were wiped out in the Quartz Zone Massacre, as we all know. But he did save their consciousness onto chips. And therefore he has three, uh, three of his uh, compatriots are still with him. He is, they have been built into his equipment. He has put the chips onto his equipment. Uh, his friend Helm ended up in his helmet. His friend Gunner ended up in his gun. <laughs> his friend Bagman ended up as his backpack. Wow. And, and they so his equipment can talk to him. So the you know the they're all alive. Yeah. It's okay. great to have have him having a conversation between a, a helmet, a backpack, and a gun. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, I if you're not interested in this this concept now you never will be just just let that one go there's also an ad for the 1982-2000 annual uh which was uh just the, the english annuals were always great they were a combination of text pieces and and comic books uh and news stories and they were just good stuff you see for me they weren't that great because I wasn't interested in reading like the text stories and they just reprinted um, stuff from other issues. Rarely had they had new stuff in them, but ah. for you maybe they were new. But for me, I'm going, Hey, I've read these comics, but mm. you know, the annuals was about making this thing that they could sell. That was like an anthology. And you think and, it was uh, for the grannies so they could get it for their, their grandchildren for Christmas and say, Oh, yeah, I, Timmy likes 2000 AD. I'll get him that. And then I'll yeah. get him Beano and Dandy. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Last page of the of the book. 
is the Galaxy Greatest Heroes. This is a uh, once again, kids sending in their uh, their artwork of the various characters from 2000 AD. Yeah, look, there's some. Look, I love it that the kids, you know, getting prizes, you know, for the artwork, and this is in color. Their their work has been submitted. Mm. Um. So, and on the back of you know, one of the best comics of its day. Yeah. Um. So you. I think these are pretty good for, for what kids, what they're doing. Exactly right. And, like, it just once again shows the sort of the incongruity, incongruity, the incongruity, yeah. <laughs> the incongruity? Yes. Of, uh, of a kid's comic compared to the contents that there's lies within. Uh, that was worth it. <laughs> okay now the main event the main event is it's a very short story but judge dread judge death lives part four okay so what do you tell us about judge dread can you mark what what's the whole thing i mean well, in judge, case people judge... haven't seen the two movies based on this character What's the attraction? Well, Judge Dredd is um, a a cop, but he's also, but obviously he's a judge. He's he's a uh, he will judge you, and he's also an executioner. So he's, I guess, have streamlined how the uh, criminal system works. So if Judge Dredd is there and he sees you doing a crime, he will sentence you on the spot, and then you'll be taken to the isolation cubes. But if you're you know, what you're doing warrants a death sentence. He'll just shoot you on the spot. So it's this authoritarian sort of um, America that Judge Dredd is set in. And, you know, that's a the city that Mega City One is where he he operates. And there's a whole lot of judges there keep trying to keep Mega City One um, under control. But there, there are so many people there that, you know, they're, Barely scratching the surface of the crime, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think Canada's... that's what's what's led to this streamlining of the criminal system. Yeah, and it is once again heavily satire because everything is illegal. Sugar is illegal. Uh, 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 well, nicotine, obviously, uh, and of course, comic books are illegal. So, <laughs> really? Yes. In that world. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh my uh, god! Yeah, that's right. It's like it, it, that just shocked you so much that your your audio broke up a little bit. And uh, you were I, oh god! It. I, well, Such yeah, is the so, power of the law. So the the traditional story of a traditional Judge Red comic mm-hmm. is that you're really introduced to a new perpetrator of a type of crime. Yeah, sometimes He's invested- it's a new crime. Yeah, it's a crime that you're not aware of, and there's there's different, there's future crimes in here. However, the Judge Dread and Judge Death is a bit different. Uh, now, Judge Death is the ultimate uh, antithesis, one would say, of Judge Dread, or perhaps the ultimate realization of the principle where I think the latter, <laughs> <laughs> where uh, in a different dimension, the judges are. Uh, realize that only the living commit crimes 
Therefore, the, the crime is life. Yes. To eliminate crime, you must eliminate life. As Judge Dredd would say, the crime is life. The sentence is yes. death. He says that a lot. Uh, <laughs> uh, he doesn't. There's only one, you know, sentence. So, but this one, the, you know, Judge Dredd, death, and and Judge Dredd were introduced in an earlier comic, which you, I remember it, but you'd probably sum it up a lot better than me. Oh, look, I can't write. I read it not long ago, but I can't rightly recall. He shows up uh, and starts killing people. Judge, judge. Uh, oh, that's where we are introduced to Judge Anderson from Psy Division. Yes. The telepath. She traps Judge Dredd in her mind and her body is encased in... Uh, Boing. Boing, the wonder plastic. Uh, and there she is sacrifices her her existence to keep Judge Death trapped inside of her. But of course, Judge Death gets out. Anderson uh, also gets out. Uh, beautifully rendered in this uh, splash screen, uh, splash, splash page by Brian Bolland. Uh, truly one of the masters of comic art. Her look was based on Deborah Harry. Oh, really? Well, then, mission accomplished. Yeah. Because that's, that's all I can see. And you know who uh, Judge Dredd's look is based on? Deborah Harry. <laughs> so close. So is close. it Clint Eastwood? Or it is, is Clint it... Eastwood, right on. I, I didn't know that for sure, but that's all I can see. Yeah, that's, that's what's there. Uh, and we, so that's a quick briefing on Judge, uh, Judge Dredd. Judge Death, Judge Anderson, the major players in this particular story. Uh, and we start in media res. Uh, Judge Dredd and Anderson have jumped, jumped through a psi shield. He says, we're through the psi shield. The <laughs> caption helpfully explains that four dark judges, Death, Beer, Fire and Mortis, have arrived from another dimension to punish Megacity 1 for the crime of life. Uh, now outside Billy Clark Block. Anderson of Side Division uses her mental powers to penetrate the Dark Judge's defences. And it, it's interesting because you see the four Dark Judges together and they all look very different. Judge Fire is on fire. Um, Judge Death is, a, you, know, a, you know, a skeletal frame, but in a, you know, a judge's uniform. Um, my favourite is Judge Mortis. Of he is. He's, he's like got a I think he's got a cow skull. That's right. He's horns. got a cow skull for a head. And uh, he's obviously decayed and rotten and falling away and, and judge fear. He's um, got a, a portcullis for, for a face. Yeah, so they're all having a, a little, you know, meeting about this issue, um, which is which, which I find hilarious, actually. <laughs> yeah, they say, well, what are we going to do? Uh, Dredge here, here, another judge. Uh, I uh, fear says, I go to dark guard the shield, and and Judge Fire says, I go to deal with the traitors. <laughs> and Death, of course, stays to continue judgment, and he does look very scary in his. Oh, he's up. fantastic! He's got 
you know, his uniform is a parody of Judge Dredd, you know, a, a mega city judge. Yeah. And like there's bones on it, skulls and claws, but it's it's really well done. It's amazing. Amazingly rendered by uh, Brian Boland. And yeah, truly, if you were to see this in real life, you you would uh, void yourself. That's all I got to say. I okay. Agree. Next page, page three of the story. Uh, okay, we're going to try and get some more people through this shield, but uh, we got to knock out the generator, says Anderson. Uh, so she uses her mental power. She does her, like, the whole uh, clutching the sides of her head and finds the location of a generator that they must take down so the other judges can get in to save. Because currently, the uh, dark judges are in a a city mega block uh, and they are just going through and killing everyone they find because that's what they do. Yeah. yeah. They're judging. They're judging the living. Uh, oh. Okay. Uh, some some uh, citizens see the judges and say, Judge Dredd, thank God you've come back. Don't count your chickens yet, citizen. Uh, Judge Fire shows up, spitting fire at them. Dredd throws some boing at them, but of course he just burns through it. He doesn't care. Uh, once again, I mean, the story moving at a fair clip, and there's not a lot of depth to it at this stage, but it's just so beautiful to look at. To rewind a little bit, Judge yeah. Dredd is a sort of character that back in that panel where, Judge Dredd, thank God you've come, he might have actually saying, actually, I can see that you've committed a crime there and quickly sentence someone and then continue on. You know, it's just lucky he's got something he's busy with, um, yeah. you know, with a, with a, you know, this, this, this bad guy. Yeah. He's got some pressing business at the moment. Uh, okay. So there's a spectacular explosion when the Boeing canister explodes. Uh, it's igniting. Uh, Judge fire, like, lays down some sass you know you oh. dare resist us you who have failed in your duty to judge your own people you you must be judged <laughs> sorry i didn't do the voice right sorry mark yeah you did it wrong <laughs> sorry um okay and then we have judge dread saying drock bullets so stop him now drock fantastic here's something oh. i wanted to talk about uh so it's a kid's comic, right? But they want to make it like as action-like movie-esque as possible. So they want to have some swearing in, but they can't use real swears. So they just have to make up their own, right? Yeah, that, this is where I first encountered that sort of thing. But it's a tradition that is even carried on to like Battlestar Galactica today, you know, in the, the TV series. I can't remember how they, they swore in that, but they had made up words for swear words in the future. And I believe it's inspired all by this. This is the first time I've ever seen it. Um, mm -hmm. Like in Johnny Alpha, someone says, Sneck it. Yeah. You know, and that's uh, another swear. But you'll sometimes they use swears in the same swears in different comics as well. Exactly right. Well, famously, they got, they had Drock, they had Grud. Oh, yeah. Grud has got, yeah. Uh, Grud on the greenie, Smeg. Uh, and they got it to the point uh, where they were using them so much that they actually started sounding worse than the actual swear words that they wanted to use. 
<laughs> so, you know, glorious. Uh, uh, buy grud and uh, shut your drocking mouth and stuff like that. They actually had to scale back because they they started to get complaints about their fake swear words. Drock me in my snake hole. <laughs> I'm sure oh. I re- read that, or have I just imagined it now? Uh, I don't, but I think... <laughs> snake, snake me in the mouth. <laughs> okay. Um, cool. So there's a, there's a action scene on the next page after where Judge Dredd says, Drock. Um, they drop a ton, a ton of uh, cement on uh, Judge Fire, and they get they get by him. Ah, easily thwarted. Everyone knows to put out a fire, concrete. <laughs> exactly right. Drop a building on it. Uh, in Peanut Park, the next page, Judge Death also senses <laughs> the danger. And that's another thing about the world of Judge Dredd is they have weird names for things. Uh, historical name. Everything is named after historical figures, which, of course, is the future because so historical figures are people that are famous in 1981. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I wonder if like there's anything like Steve Irwin Block oh. um, or any, any modern... I'm curious what modern ones they'd have now. Oh, they'd have to. They'd have to. That's the running joke. That's always going. It's always like a the block names are somehow appropriate to the story, uh, but of historical figures, which are of course just current day celebrities. So I'm oh. sure there's been a Simon Cowell block or a Jamie Oliver block in uh, in 2008 stories. Okay, they find they. Oh, now I want to say first panel of this page. Uh, it's just Judge Death is just sitting there casually with his hand buried in someone's chest, <laughs> squeezing their heart to death. Uh, Mortis has like got his very disturbingly skeletal hands on someone and is draining the life from them. It's a very simple uh, image, but it's just very spooky and chilly. And like once again, this is a kids' comic, folks. Yeah, um, bring it. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I'm wondering what my mum would have thought <laughs> if she'd actually read one of these. But anyway. Uh, she wouldn't get in that, that far into it. Okay, they find the shield generator. Oh. Judge Fear is there. Man trap. He throws out a, like a bear trap, but a man trap. Anderson's ankle is caught. Her whole leg is caught. Look uh, at that thing. It's yeah. insane. She ain't going to be walking for a while after that. Um, Judge Fear descends on Dread, opens the portcullis of his of his uh, helmet, and says, "Gaze into the face of fear." Um, I, I don't know if I did the voice no, right. No, you, you did. The, uh, that was right. That was oh, right. okay. Cool, cool. Uh, and the whole thing is that whenever he shows people his face, Judge Fear does, they die. Because it's so terrifying what is underneath his uh, underneath his mask. So for a moment, the icy chill of terror courses down Dread's spine. The shock of his gaze can kill an ordinary man. Well, I wonder what's going to happen on the next page. Let's flip it over, shall we? Yes. I'll, I'll lead you in. But Drudge, but 
Dread is a judge, and judges are not ordinary men. And then there's a picture of Judge Dread punching literally through Judge Fear's head. So he's punching him in the face, and his fist is emerging through the back of his helmet, saying, Gaze into the fist of Dread. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, probably the single most famous panel from Judge Dread ever. Uh, featured on, to this day, you can get T-shirts of this, uh, prints for your wall, uh, beautifully rendered again by Brian Bolland. Oh, wow. And, uh, of course, it's a supremely badass moment in a, like, uh, action comic for kids. Who could not, like, even though, I mean, Dread is the bad guy, okay? <laughs> is he? In many ways, he is. But he's fighting someone who's worse than him at the moment. And how could you not love him? How could you not love him for sheer badassery? Yeah, I can imagine saying that in the play play school playground. Gaze into the fist of dread. Boom. (laughs) Um, Murdering one of my schoolmates by punching my hand through their face. Yeah, I can just see me emulating this behaviour. Mm. That's something to something to look forward to. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, and then uh, Anderson, trapped on the floor as she is, fires her incendiaries. Dread Val Val work Val work on this beauty, uh, setting fear on fire. Fools, it, you cannot kill what does not live. Oh, so beautiful. And that is that is sort of like the Dark Judge's uh, coda. You yes. can't kill them because they're not alive. Uh, as his body burns, his spirit f- uh, floats away. Uh, and they blow up the shield. The shield is down. Hit the Billy Carter block. Uh, Billy Carter, I believe, is, was the President of the United States of America at this point in time. Uh, with everything you've got. And that means... To be continued, next prog, Death's Dark Dominion. Oh, boy. That's what a roller coaster. That is. That's, uh, I think, six pages of sheer adrenaline. Okay, so we've actually reached the end. We've gone through the whole whole comic. How about wow. that? Wow. Uh, so I uh, will say... What do you think? Was it a good comic? We'll do we'll do our final judgments. Final judgment. Uh, was it good, bad, or two years in the ISO cubes? Oh, look, for me it was good. There's a lot of nostalgia in there for me, and like, you know, I there. It's difficult to say that you know. Obviously, it's done in the '80s, but I thought it was like so ahead of its time. So, you know, obviously things have moved on now. Like, it's quite a simple little story. You know, not a lot happens in, in that dread thing, but the, the, they introduce in the time they have these weird concepts, different ideas. So I know I, I'd say it's, it's, it's great. Give me two years in the ISO cubes with the comic. Okay, we'll do. We'll make the time pass what, quickly. What about you? Uh, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say double good. <laughs> I'm gonna say, oh, okay. 
I could say on a technical level, overall the comic is good. The art is uh, very professional, and the fact that they were bringing this out weekly just blows my mind that they oh, could God. have such a level of uh, a level of quality. So technically, the writing is clear. It's all very simple. It's for, it's like it is for kids. Um, uh, the art, particularly Brian Boland, is just beautiful to look at. Uh, I don't know how he does it. I wish I did know how he did it. Uh, but even like even the the lesser strips still have adequate art and good writing. Uh, you know, Nemesis the Warlock and uh, Strontium Dog, uh, obviously, are well written as well. You know, the uh, the Meltdown Man. I don't know whether it was good or bad. Because it's like reading the last chapter of a novel. You wouldn't really know what's going on. So on that level, it's good. And I'll also say, the fact that this is, as I have said many times, this is for children, but it is not talking down to kids in any way, shape, or form. It is like... Oh, some, yeah. It is actually talking up to them. It is like there's a lot of... Oh, there's action and excitement and incident, but there's satire and uh, like things that make you think. I don't know. It's it's like it's it's not a, it's not uh, adult concept because it's violence and and uh, swearing. Though there are nods to that, but it's very adult concepts and just really well done. And for like coming out. As it did in Thatcherite Brisbane in 19, uh, Brisbane, <laughs> Thatcherite London in 1981. It's amazing, uh, truly, uh, yeah, truly good. Okay, so I say it's double good. Uh, look, I yeah, I also agree with you. <laughs> okay, so then we ask the question. We're we're getting to the home stretch here. What did you learn from this comic, Mark? What did I learn? Tell me what you learned. Okay. I learned that uh, I'm addicted to thrill power, Mark. I I have a thrill power addiction that can only be slaked by uh, 2000 AD. Well, uh, you're, you're in luck because there's a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, I almost had a thrill overdose, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I am addicted to the thrill power. How about yourself? What did you learn? Um, okay. No, I'd even say that this this comic was Jar Jazz. Zar Jazz. Zar Jazz. Sorry. How dare you? Oh my um, god! I'm not from Beetlejuice. Oh god! I'm just looking through all the panels here, and I'm just you know blown away. Um, okay. I, I I'll be honest, it's so difficult. I I'm learning that they they were they really were ahead of their times in the 80s when it came to uh, anthology comics. Just mm. amazing stuff. Okay. Well, it is, it is a, yes, it's very notable. I'll give it that. So we've got a question from the internet. The question is from Laura on Facebook. And the question goes, why does it appear to be the case that comics appeal far more to males than females? Is it the large breasts of the female superheroes, or is it something more? Sincere question. I think, you know, the comics were mainly written with this whole idea, without the, 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 
a female audience in mind. Mm. You know, so I knew some girls who did like 2000 AD, but really I just think we needed to have some uh, female writers and female artists in there and just to, it's very, you know, boys own adventure sort mm. of stuff. Um, and I'm curious as to what would have happened if we had some female writers and comic artists in mm. that time. Maybe that's something that you can look on. That's my takeaway. But yeah. the thing is, I can't say that women aren't wouldn't be interested in those comic. These sorry, can't can't say that females would be interested in the comics. But I, I don't know. What do you think? I think you're spot on. I think it was very much. Uh... Very gendered. Uh, there were comics specifically uh, aimed for females. Like uh, if we were to take uh, the English, the British model, there was uh, Mandy and uh, oh, uh, other ones. Oven of the Week. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, I think on a, on a big scale, particularly since the 1950s um, when... Uh, romance comics first took off. Comics have very much been heavily gendered, and it's only in the past maybe 10 years that they've really been stretching out and getting more representation on the creative side for women, even though a lot of uh, female artists and writers were pioneers in the comics industry. Um, they, it's been very much a boys', boys club. And I yeah. think there have been like a lot of good comics for women that have been coming out for women by women. Ms. Marvel has been particularly good. Uh, the, uh, the unbeatable squirrel girl. Uh, they, yeah. Uh, those are a couple from, uh, Marvel, but yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of fanboy feet, like pushback against this. Like, you know, they're, they're, People are terrified that if, like, there's a one or two female-aimed comic books, it's going to ru ruin their 100, and 100 other <laughs> male-aimed ones that are coming out that month. Uh, I think this, this is silly. That's you want totally. more people reading comics well, and not less. Well, also, I'd, I'd really like some balance. You know, I'm ready... I'm ready for for female comics. You know, you know, I'm ready to hear the the stories they want to tell because yeah. we've been have. Let's the guys have had a a really big shake of the stick. They have. So, uh, it's like this is a little anecdote I like. It's like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the uh, oh, yeah. female member of the Supreme Court in the United States was once asked, you know, well, you think that when you get 50% women on the Supreme Court, that'll be uh, that'll be equal representation for you? And she said, no. For equal representation, we need all of the Supreme Court to be female for 200 years. <laughs> She's uh, right. So take that as you will. I'm not saying that all comics should be written by and for females. I'm saying it doesn't hurt to have some there. It's actually pretty good. Makes things better. That's uh, that's the question. I think we've answered that one. We solved we solved the problem of women reading comics. Good one. Two <laughs> white men did it at last. 
That's right. It just took two two white guys. If only we'd been on the on the scene before then. And uh, now for we have our second last section of the podcast. Recommendations. Is there something you would like to recommend for people to read that is not this particular issue of, of 2000 AD, which Can is not available? A, not does available. It has to be legally. a comic. Okay. It does, does not it have to be a comic. It can be anything you want. Look, um, if you, I don't like spoilers, so I would love to just recommend something and just go read it. Um, the Wasp Factory by uh, Ian Banks. This is a novel? Yeah, this is a novel. It's not a very long book. Um, mm. I, it's, I'm sure you can pick it up cheaply. And I, I listened to it on uh, audiobook. I would just, you know, if you just want to just try something you haven't heard before, Wasp Factory. It's a little bit dark, so if you're not into dark stuff, then maybe that's not for you. But just try it out. Okay, that's good. My recommendation for this week is um, based on the work of Kevin O'Neill, the artist on Nemesis the Warlock, I would say get yourself a hold of uh, Volume 1 of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, written by Alan Moore, drawn by Kevin O'Neill. It is not like the movie, if you have seen the movie. Even if you like the movie, it's still not like the movie. It is a fantastic pastiche of classic characters. It goes off the rails in pre, uh, subsequent volumes, but the first volume is solid, very solid, and has that unique art style provided by Kevin O'Neill. They've recently finished the complete saga. They've done the last story of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which I have not read yet, so I don't know how that goes. But that's my oh. recommendation. Oh, good one. Mm -hmm. That's it. So we're on to the final section of the uh, of the podcast. Plugs. Uh, have you got anything that you'd like to plug that you've done or maybe a friend of yours has done lately, Mark? I'd love to plug a, a podcast called Binge Minute. They take a movie that um, they haven't seen and they uh, watch it minute by minute and they review each minute as they go along. Um, they're 50 episodes in. The episodes are quite short and they're it's done by some people I know, Taylor Edwards and Chris Martin, um, some funny people. They're great I've people written. too. They're lovely. Yeah, they, they, they're good people. They deserve to live. Um, that's Send them to the ISO cubes. <laughs> but, yeah, if, if you don't like it after three episodes, it's not your jam, but that's it. Get, it, it helps if, you, if you've watched the movie that they're reviewing and the movie is Moon, then you get to see if they guess what's going to come happen next. It's quite, yeah, I'd recommend it. Give it a try. What about well, you? My, my plug is uh, something I found about, out about earlier today is that I'm going to be doing a, an online impro show as a part of the Anywhere Festival here in Brisbane, Queensland. Uh, I'll be doing one or one or several performances of the Black Dossier, my fantastic conspiracy-inspired improv show. It's a one-person show, but there will be uh, there will be bits of st red string and pins and uh, all sorts of technical shenanigans where I will take 
two separate things and show the conspiracy what joins them together, uh, which was up to this point never before revealed. So that's going to be happening. Uh, I'll put a link on the sh- in the show notes for that because I'll know more about it by the time this episode drops. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the end of the show. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for being along with us, Mark. It's great to have you here as well. Always fun. Thanks for having me again. I look forward to another thousand episodes where I'm involved. <laughs> okay, I'll see what I can do. I'll pencil you in for another uh, two. Okay. <laughs> Well, that's it. Thanks, and good night. Thanks for listening to Troubling Issues. Bye.